that passage we read in Hebrews would be just perfect. If it came the day we were covering Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai. But nevertheless, all things the Lord does is perfect. And we're actually going to look at a few things that still have uh, quite a bit of parallel with what the Lord does there at Sinai and what he does here. So please follow along as I start in verse 43 of chapter 12 and read to 13 verse 16. A few weeks ago, um, I think it was three weeks ago, uh, we taught on a similar passage on the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I, I, t- <laughs> I titled that sermon, Making Rituals Great Again. And um, I almost did that again. But this, nevertheless, is another lesson on the, the benefit of sacraments and rituals that the Lord gives us. So please follow along, starting in verse 43, chapter 12. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, to Yahweh, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as Yahweh commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that day, very day, Yahweh brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. And Yahweh said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, Yahweh brought you out of this place. No unleavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat the unleavened bread, And on the seventh day, there shall be a great feast to Yahweh. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for the seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what Yahweh did for me when I came out of Egypt. And And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of Yahweh may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, Yahweh brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When Yahweh brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you, to your fathers, 
and shall give it to you. Ye shall set apart to Yahweh all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be Yahweh's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn among man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, Yahweh killed the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of the animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to Yahweh all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt. Father, we ask for your blessing on the reading of your word, that you would help both speaker and listener alike to appropriate by faith what you have for us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last time we looked at the Exodus and the 10th plague. It was the night that Israel finally was being delivered from their long captivity. And just as we had a couple weeks ago when we looked at the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we have another kind of parenthetical section here in the narrative. Here, no doubt, a narrative, a story is coming along from Exodus 1 onward, but from chapters 10 and 11, 12, 13, and around here, there are little instructive sections that kind of stop the narrative for a moment and tell Israel how they should live in light of their deliverance. How they should live now that they have been redeemed. And this is one of those sections. So from verse 43 of chapter 12 to verse 16 of 13, we have three rituals being mentioned. The Passover, which we are pretty well aware of now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and now a new ritual, which is the dedication or the consecration of the firstborn. Having delivered Israel out of the house of slavery, God has established necessary means to preserve Israel in his grace and to keep that night, the night of the 10th plague, dear in their hearts. There was only one 10th plague night, only one. And God institutes the Passover, the consecration of the firstborn, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread to keep that moment fresh, that they wouldn't forget it. Israel would go on to have many nights. Some nights, happy nights. Spoils of war, victory. Other nights, sad nights. But no night was to be like this night. This night, God wanted to rivet in their hearts the importance of deliverance. He knew he knows that they are prone to forget. 
they're prone to forget even such an amazing deliverance out of Egypt. And so, so to solemnize, that's even a word, that night, and to keep it fresh for them, that they wouldn't wander off the path, he gives them rituals. And I know I covered this a little bit last time, and we think lightly of rituals. Oh, it's just something you do to fill up time in the service, or you don't even know why you do it sometimes. No, no, no. God institutes rituals, or we would just call them today sacraments or ordinances, to keep the love of God towards sinners fresh in our hearts. We are no different than Israel. And the one day in Jerusalem, on Calvary, should never, ever be forgotten. And yet we do. We do forget it. Think for a second, what would your life be like if there was no corporate worship ever? There's no baptism. There's no corporate worship. There's no Lord's table. There's no sacraments. There's no means of grace. It's just, you heard the good news of Jesus, and then you just went on with your life with no ritual in place. My purpose in this message, and a few weeks ago, is to redeem, by God's grace, the value of rituals. And we live, unfortunately, in a society where, where rituals are just poo-pooed. They're, they're considered empty, formalism, purposeless. No, the rituals, Lord's table, baptism, preaching of the word, corporate worship are given so you would not go wayward. You stay on the narrow path. Think of the church at Ephesus. This church, if they ever had, if there was ever a church with such pastoral, like, like heavy hitters, Paul, Timothy, John, <laughs> this church was commended in a lot of ways. But when Jesus visits the church and he tells the angel, which is the pastor of the church, the messenger of the church, this is what one thing I have wrong with you, it would strike them to the heart. You have forgotten your first love. You've done a lot of good things. Not taking that away, Jesus says. But more than all of that is you have forgotten Christ. You have forgotten your Savior. So Jews get saved. They come out of Egypt. They're walking along the path. And God says, I'm going to give you the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and I'm going to institute the consecration of the firstborn so that you will never, ever have reason to forget this night. Ever. 
And for generations after generations after generations, for thousands of years, or a little over a thousand, 1,500 years, they would do this every year. So they would not forget. And we're, and we're no different. We forget. We forget. So what does God do? He delights in giving us reminders. He knows we're, we're just fickle little children. Or, in the most accurate, yet the most offensive description in the Bible, we're sheep. And we're stupid, wayward, and completely dependent. I was talking, <laughs> I was talking to a guy on a plane, leaving the RBNet conference last week, coming back, finally got a flight that actually went somewhere. And he was, he's a pastor down in um, Texas. He has sheep. I love learning how completely like sheep we are. He was telling me about his sheep. He said, sheep are bred and genetically disposed to never be independent. They always need a shepherd. There's no sheep out there that's like, I got it. Okay, let me just go. And we've all seen these memes, these videos, they get stuck in a trench, they go along the fence, and they go get stuck again, and they're just completely helpless. We're sheep. We forget. And so the Lord gives us sacraments, rituals, signs to say, you need to fan into flame the love that which I have poured out into you and rekindle that again and again. You need your hearts revived again and again. And that happens through the ordinary means of grace, preaching of the word, Lord's table, baptism, and things like that. Daily reading of the Bible. So let's look at the rituals God has given Israel here. First, he gives them a meal for special people. A meal for special people. We live in a climate today where of equality, if one person's more special than the other, you're in for it. You better buckle up. But nevertheless, God has his special people, and he regards them infinitely different than everybody else. And Passover meal would do that. It would communicate in verses 43 to 51 that Israel would dine with the Lord as the destroyer was going over and smiting the firstborn. And this is only for God's people. It says in verse 45, no, ho- no foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. Verse 43, no foreigner may eat of it. Only Israel can eat this meal. This is a special meal. You're not invited. God is saying, if you're not in my covenant, you're not invited. And you might be thinking, well, that doesn't seem very loving. Like the God of the New Testament has arms open out wide and he's willing to let people in. Yes, there is an exclusiveness to the gospel. God's special people. And there is also an inclusiveness. All who wants to come can come. No doubt about it. But as we look in this text right here, 
They're coming out of Egypt. He says, only Israel can keep this Passover. But a problem has arisen. When Israel was coming out of Ramses and they're traveling, other nations who were in Egypt said, I'm going with you. And they saw a better future with Yahweh in the desert than they did with Pharaoh. So a mixed multitude goes up with them in 1238, very much livestock. And you have now a people group, which is not just ethnic Israel. You have a people group, which is actually Israel, Jews, and various nations and ethnicities. This does, by the way, tell us we shouldn't be shocked when in the New Testament, he's pulling people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation to make up the church. That's not a purely new covenant thing. He's done that from the outset of the deliverance of Israel, that it would be a nation of nations. So all these mixed multitude comes up, but he says, only Israel can eat of this. This is a special meal. Now, anybody who's never been, or has kind of been left out of the in-group understands, well, that's no fair, right? But God says, even though only Israel may eat of it, actually, anyone can eat of it, should they be circumcised. Every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. So we have various categories of people here. You have foreigner, verse 43. You have slave in verse 44. You have foreigner again or stranger in verse 45, depending on your translation. You have hired servant in verse 45. You have stranger in verse 48. You have a, a smattering of various kinds of people. And I'm not going to go into detail on who they all are. They range from a, basically a contract worker, someone just working among Israel for a short time, to a foreigner just traveling through. I'm sorry, a, a sojourner traveling through, or a foreigner who actually is among them. But what the foreigner, slave, hired servant, all these people have in common is that they're not Jews. They're not Israel. And so they're out of the covenant. However, verse 48, if a stranger, which is almost a term that would encompass all of them, would sojourn with you and would keep the Passover, he, got, he has to be circumcised, but then he can take the Passover. It is in one sense, all are welcome, but only if you come are you special. <laughs> all are welcome to the cross, but only those who accept Christ are the God's chosen people. And when the foreigner, stranger, or non-Jew gets circumcised, what is the marvelous good news? He shall be as a native of the land. He will be a Jew. And, verse 49, there shall be one law for the native and for the stranger. There's no partiality. There's no rules here for Jews and rules here for Gentiles. If you are in God's covenant, 
the same love with which he shed upon the Jews, he then sheds upon the Gentiles. So there is an inclusiveness. Come. Everybody come. But those who refuse, they are not God's special people. Those who do accept the circumcision are special. They are loved by God in a way in which he doesn't love others. We see this in the New Testament. Not all Israel is Israel. There are unbelieving Israelites who are called Gentiles. And there are believing Gentiles who are called the Israel of God. It's not about ethnicity. What puts someone in God's covenant of grace is faith in Christ. Doesn't matter your skin, finances, born, raised, whatever, anything. What matters is faith alone in the Messiah. Or if we were to step out from a 30,000 foot with this text in mind. It is faith in God's promises. The mixed multitude going out with Israel, some of them, and we'll see this later in the book of Exodus, might have been that rabble that was causing a bunch of problems later on. Some of them might have been genuinely seen, wow, Yahweh just smote Israel, uh, Egypt. He just disintegrated the empire. Locusts and Nile to blood and darkness on the land and all that stuff. That is the one true God. That's what they have, would have concluded. So here is a special meal for God's people. They are marked as holy and not common. And this is not bagging on anyone who's not a Christian who we would love and desire to come to Christ. But God says there are common people and then there are his holy people, his loved people. And he holds out his hand all day long to a stubborn, rebellious, obstinate people. He says, come, come unto me. But those who refuse are not his holy, specially loved people. And he gives his special people sacraments. He gives them a meal. A meal. Our Lord's table is just a, a little wafer and a little thing of juice. It's not a meal in the sense of like, like meal, meal. But it is a meal. Because where the Lord's Supper is instituted and, and observed, Christ is with his people. And he's dining among them. So first off, we have a meal for special people. You're a special person. It's not just what your mom would tell you. Like even God tells you you're special if you believe in Jesus. Next, he gives them a bread for memory. And if you look at 13 verses 3 through 10, I'll make a quick comment. Moses bringing up the consecration of the firstborn in verse 2 is revisited in verse 11. 
So we're just going to skip that for a second because in 11 to 16, that is much more um, detailed. But he gives them the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, if it isn't already obvious in the reading of the Scripture, these instructions are actually not for the, that very night. These instructions are for the generation that would enter the land. And you see that when he says, when your son comes to ask you, what does this mean? When you possess the land, you know, this is actually instructions for the generation that will inherit the land. Little did Israel know that wasn't them. Now that wasn't because of God's cruelty. That was because of their own unbelief. However, despite their unfaithfulness to the covenant, he was faithful to the covenant and he brought them into the land. So he gives them this meal, this bread of memory. How do they know they'll reach the land? Well, we have the promise mentioned there in verse 5. When he brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, which he swore, which he swore to your fathers to give you. And then parenthetically, I just love this picture, a land flown with milk and honey, like, mm, yes, which he swore to your fathers to give you. And this is just where sometimes we wish we could read the original languages. It's actually passive voice. It's not he swore in the active voice, but he was sworn to. God was sworn to do this. Now, he wasn't sworn to do this by somebody else, but he swore upon himself. But the passive voice means that he is no doubt obligated. Yes, God is obligated by voluntarily taking his word upon himself to give his people what he says he would. He is obligated in a covenant of grace to give his people the land. Now, his people will make that very, very difficult by their unbelief, by their grumbling, by their complaining. And 40 years later, they will ultimately get in there, but he swore upon himself or he was sworn to give them this promise. That's how they know they would get in because he swore to it. And to whom did he make this promise? He made it to Abraham. He didn't make it to them. He made it to Abraham first. And then after many, many years, he applied the same promise to Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then the 12 sons of Jacob and then all who come from Abraham. So that what is Abraham's is actually theirs. What is Abraham's, they will inherit. Hebrews tells us Abraham never got that land. Well, actually the Old Testament tells us that too. He never got that land. But his, inher- his, his progeny inherited that land. What is his is now theirs. We're going to see that and explore it in just a second. And once they receive the promised land, how should they keep a fresh appreciation of this gift? 
by teaching it to their children on the very week that they were brought out of Egypt, they would have a seven-day-long party, festival, feast, commemorating what happened anything from one to 1,500 years ago in Egypt when they were brought out of Egypt that very night. So how should they commemorate this? They have the unleavened bread, and I taught on that a little bit. I'm not going to go into that as I did before, but they would have this feast. No leavens found in the home. If they are, they're cut off from Israel. But this is a feast to the Lord. Only his people would take it, and they should commemorate this and keep this afresh in their hearts by teaching their children what happened that night. What happened that night. In verse 8, you shall tell your son on that day, on that day. So to the day, one year later or 40 years later, they would have their son sit down and tell them, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. They would commemorate their deliverance out of the land of leaven, the land of malice, and be brought into a, a pure land, a land of sanctification and purity. And they would follow that ritual every night to be reminded, I'm a delivered person. I'm a redeemed person. I am a spared person. That's my identity. Everything else may go wrong in life, but I am a delivered person. That's my heritage. But it's interesting. He says, you shall tell your son on that day. So to the very day, he's supposed to say these words. It is because of what Yahweh did for me when I came out of Egypt. Strange that Yahweh did for me? The people he's talking to will be dead. They will not get into the land. Their children and grandchildren will get into the land. But because the promise applies to them as much as it did to Abraham and all subsequent generations, the covenant community is to see themselves as living in the one day of redemption. So the dad would say to his son, let's say 60 years from now, 60 years. I came out of Egypt 60 years ago, but he didn't go out of Egypt. His granddaddy did, but he did too. Because the covenant community exists as a single body. It's interesting that in Deuteronomy 4, when Moses is teaching the generation that's about to enter the land, how he talks to them. He talks to them like they're 40 years old, as in they just left Egypt. And he talks to them hundreds of years old in the sense of they are going to go in exile. He talks to them like they're spanning both epochs. He says, 
But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that to them. He did it for the other generation. To be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. And then fast forward. Moses says, this is what's going to happen. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. So you have the exile, which happens in approximately 586 BC. Then you have the Egypt, Egyptian um, deliverance, which happens in a, approximately 1400 BC. And he speaks to the generation and says, you are this body of people. Just as surely as you are the ones who were brought out of Egypt, so your future is you will be sent into exile for your own idolatry. First Kings 17. The covenant community identifies themselves as living in the redemption moment. They relive the redemption by considering themselves delivered on that day. So someone says to you, oh, you're a Christian. I'm a Christian too. When did you get saved? 2,000 years ago. I got saved 2,000 years ago because the blood of Christ was spilled on that day. That's the day in history in which I was saved. It was applied in my own lifetime. But in eternity past, God has this planned out that his body of people, his elect, his chosen people are seen to be living this gamut of days and years so that this father can truly tell the son, I came out of Egypt. And should the father ever think, well, it didn't really happen to me. It happened to my granddaddy. Faithlessness. He is to regard himself and teach his child, we are redeemed people. We are not people who are inheriting promises that happen to other people. No, 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 no. We have been redeemed. One commentator says it this way. In God's economy, each generation of his people is expected to cultivate and have identification with all the experience, experiences of all generations. And all generations must identify with the events that have happened or will happen to any generation. We don't live in an island. We don't live to ourselves or die to ourselves. We live with a great heritage so that even a Christian, even a Gentile Christian can ta- today can say, Egypt, that's my heritage. Exile, that's my heritage. I have the heritage of God's people going all the way back, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where Yahweh promised the enemy would have his head crushed by that serpent destroyer. And I'm in him. And thus being in him, I have all his promises. Just like Israel being in Abraham have all his promises. And this is a great challenge for us. We are individualists. 
Unless God has done it for me, directly to me, I haven't received it. Baloney. That's unbiblical. Biblical existence is to say, I have a share in my Savior. I have a participation in my Savior. I share in His sufferings. I share in His glory. I have a share in my people. I don't know if it's just Americans. I've never lived anywhere else. Or other ethnicities are like this. But there's a camaraderie. There's a camaraderie with other ethnicities. These are my German people. These are my Nicaraguan people. We don't think like that. It's the Wassel clan and only the Wassel clan. That's wrong. That's wrong. We should be thinking as having a share in the, the church from Eden to, to the New Jerusalem. Thirdly, you know, and the, the hymn, you were there. That's what I'm trying to say. You were there. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? I was there. Were you there when he rose up from the dead? I was there. Thirdly, a living sacrifice redeemed. A living sacrifice redeemed. So this is our consecration of the firstborn, which is really our only new ritual mentioned here. We've already looked at the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this is our new one here. 13.2, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast is mine. So, and he goes on in verses 11 and, and following to talk more about that. There's a setting apart of the firstborn and animals. Because, because Yahweh struck down the firstborn of man and beast in Egypt, there is a consecration of firstborn man and beast in Israel. The firstborn generation in Egypt, uh, Israelite, they were spared by a substitute lamb, right? The lamb was being eaten, blood was on the doorpost and lintel, and the firstborn of the Exodus generation was spared. But the firstborn of the later generations they were to be consecrated, devoted, sanctified, set apart, considered holy to the Lord. As God says in verse 2, is mine, particularly belonging to God. And there are animals mentioned here in verse 12 and 13, set apart to the Lord, all that first opens the womb, verse 12, all the firstborn of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. So all firstborn of sacrificial animals, sheep, goats, bulls, shall be Yahweh's sacrifice, slaughtered, sacrificed. Every firstborn donkey, which is a non-sacrificing animal, you shall redeem with a lamb. So you got a firstborn donkey, 
a lamb dies in the donkey's place or you break the donkey's neck. You don't just get to keep the donkey. It belongs to the Lord. The Lord owns all firstborns. And you break his neck just simply signifying that you, you kill it in a non-slaughtering, sacrificing way. So there's two. And then, and then lastly, every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So it's, it's kind of unclear what it actually means to set apart or devote to Yahweh the firstborn child. We know for sure it doesn't mean set him apart to destruction as the pagans would do with Molech. It could mean that the firstborn, and commentators are split, every firstborn among men will be added to the Levitical tribe and functioning as a priest. Or it just may simply mean that the firstborn belongs to God in a unique way. However, the firstborn will be redeemed should the parent want it. So how does the, how does the Lord keep afresh the sparing of the firstborn to later generations by causing them to relive the Exodus, so to speak? So here's an account. This is from um, a John Gill commentary. I thought this was perfect, so I'm just going to read it. It's a, it's a paragraph, so it's kind of lengthy. He, he, he pretends this conversation happens as the father takes his son to the priest to set him, to set him apart. 30 days being after the birth of the child, they, the parents, call a priest to them, and so many people being gathered together at the time appointed, the father of the child brings before the priest in a bowl a good quantity of gold and silver in order to redeem the child. And then they give him the child into his arms. The priest then, calling the mother before him, says, Mistress, is this your son? She answers, yes. Then he replies, have you never had any child before, either male or female, or have miscarried anyone? She says unto him, no. Then the priest says, this child is mine, as being the firstborn. Then turning himself to the father, he says, whether he will redeem it or not, who answers him saying, see, here is gold and silver, Take your price, five shekels for a son, right? Numbers, the book of Numbers. His see here is gold and silver, take your price. Then the priest says unto him, will you redeem it then? Will you redeem your son? The father says, I will redeem him. It shall be so then, says the priest. I therefore take this money in exchange. And so he takes the sum of money and then delivers the child to his father and mother and this day they make a feasting day. Every generation would go through this process, not as an empty ritual, but to signify we are spared people. This very eight-day-old child in my hands could have been dead, could have been destroyed by the destroyer. 
but now I set him apart to the Lord. Like Mary and Joseph did in Luke 2, verse 22, when they came to the temple for purification, the very same thing. Or buy him back and he belongs to me. How would that rivet in the father's and mother's mind that their son is not just inherently theirs, belongs to God. And God has instituted a sacrament or a ritual so that they may live that truth and have that fresh in their hearts. And then in time to come, verse 14, the son who had gone through this, although he has no recollection because he was eight days old, What does this mean? I see our friends doing this. Bobby down the way. Or other Jewish names. What does this mean? You shall say to him, and notice the the pronouns again. By a strong hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, Yahweh killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to Yahweh all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborns of my son I redeem. They didn't live through the Exodus. But just like the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were to consider themselves has gone through it. When we take the Lord's table, we were not there, but we were there. So what are we supposed to learn from this? Is God expecting me to give my son to the ministry? <laughs> no, although maybe. Um, he is requiring of Israel that they become impressed with on their heart, their heart refreshed with the gravity of that night, that they are a people spared, spared. Sometimes you say like, oh, I was saved this and that, this day, that day, I was saved this day. But saved from what? You know, saved from what? spared. That actually, I feel like, brings the connotation of where it should be. Well, spared from what? Wrath. I was spared from God's wrath because I deserved it until the Son of God accounted himself as a slave and died for me, though I did not merit it nor ask for it. So these three rituals are given to keep Israel from forgetting that night. It was a night defined, defining their life and existence. And it was never to, be, never to be forgotten, always to be cherished. And today we call these sacraments. God ordained holy rites or ordinances, if that's more pleasing to you, 
to keep our hearts tender towards God and the love of Christ. It's interesting that he gave this to them right before the journey. Right before the journey. They have no idea what this journey is going to look like. No idea. They couldn't have guessed in a thousand years. They couldn't have written this. And it's the same thing today. The Lord gives a rite of baptism. I'm not going Roman Catholic when I say rite or sacrament. These are holy ordinances for your spiritual betterment and really for your spiritual memory because your rememberer sometimes doesn't work. He gives you baptism so that when you confess and are, uh, and are brought into God's family, you have a sacrament saying, it's like I've been brought up from the grave. It's like I have life for the first time. And he gives you the Lord's table to say, here's my covenant vow to you. I am with you. Take this until I come back. Reminding yourself and being fed in the hope to come. The preaching of the word, whether it's by some dude like me or someone else, it is to build you up in the faith so that you don't forget. Does the gospel ever get boring? Does the incarnation ever become dull? Does your heart ever get cold? Yes, it does. And it's sad that it does, but it does. And to fight against that, mitigate that, the Lord says, let me help my sheep out. Let me give them sacraments so that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt I am for them, and I am with them, and I love them. Let's pray. Father, we will soon take the Lord's table and have a chance to consider that night of our Savior's death, His burial, even His Son's resurrection. And we don't, we don't want to do that empty. Uh, we want to do it in faith. Score into our hearts what needs to be scored. That we are wayward sheep and you found us and brought us into your fold and we still wander. But that you are constantly as the good shepherd of our souls, constantly bringing us back. May we now sing to you with hearts convinced that you give us good things, not to make us go through the motions, not to obligate us to some form of worship, which has no meaning, but so that we will become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.